0: be Saturday. We are coming up on the 180th birthday of Victoria Woodhull, who was born on September 23rd, 1838. She ran for president of the United States before the 19th Amendment prohibited denying citizens the right to vote because of their sex. This episode is from 2011. It is much requested, and it is from prior hosts, Sarah and Dublina. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we are barreling right along through Women's History Month. So far, we've covered a couple of women, a pirate leader and a warrior queen, for example, who both made a name for themselves by fighting against the establishment. In this episode, however... We're going to take a look at one who sought to become part of the establishment and kind of affect change from within.
0: Kind of the biggest part of the establishment.
1: Exactly. And um, by that, we mean we're about to talk about Victoria Woodhull, the first woman to run for president of the United States.
0: Yeah, and her bid for the presidency was really remarkable. And that's not just because it happened almost 50 years before women even had the right to vote, the legal right to vote. It was miraculous because she had this really sketchy past. She basically came out of nowhere. Uh, the previous entry on her resume before presidential candidate was clairvoyant. That's something you're unlikely to see today. Unique. And um, in a couple years, she became the leading voice in the women's rights movement. So a remarkable biography.
1: Yeah, you could probably do an entire series on just all the details of her really unconventional and turbulent, sometimes kooky, downright kooky life. But we're mostly going to focus on the meteoric rise that led to her nomination for president and, of course, the scandal that caused it all to go horribly wrong. And you'll see that it really makes today's nominees, for the most part, not in all cases, but for the most part, look pretty tame. Pretty bland, yeah. i say.
0: <laughs> Certainly their names, the names in this podcast are going to be great. I just i want to get you
1: psyched up for that, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, by... Saying that she's exciting, we're not just talking about in terms of the scandal. Even her background is really fascinating and unique. So we'll get into that a little bit at first. She was born Victoria Claflin. On September 23rd, 1838, in Homer, Ohio. And her mom, Annie Claflin, named her after the then 18-year-old Queen of England. There so she is again. She keeps popping up. Queen Victoria. So Victoria Claflin was the fifth of
0: seven living kids. And while she was growing up, her family had a lot of financial struggles. Um, she didn't really let that get to her, though. She was still a very confident kid. And she kind of held court on this with her family, you know, telling stories to the other kids kids and she was really smart she had a photographic memory and there you know we, we should mention too because this comes into play later that her intelligence was not educated intelligence she she only went to school from ages 8 to 11 she was just a a smart quick learning kid
1: yeah and that's all the, that's all the school she had the opportunity to get at the time we should say but she was nicknamed little queen because of her proud demeanor and her She would intensely concentrate on things, so people thought that was very queen-like of her. A little queen,
0: just like uh, Madame de Pompadour.
1: Oh, very similar. Her dad, Buck Claflin, was kind of a rascal who just hopped from job to job. I think he had something like a dozen jobs, but... Eventually, his grand get-rich scheme was to start calling two of his daughters, Victoria and Tennessee, spiritual mediums and set them up as this traveling spiritualist medicine show.
0: Which sounds like a really off-the-wall idea, but it wasn't quite as out there as it seems because Buck had heard about this other pair of sisters from New York, Kate and Margaret Fox, and they had earned huge amounts of money working as these traveling mediums. And there was, you know, at the time, this growing interest in spiritualism. I think that's something that comes up in the podcast from time to time, too. And women were very important in that movement, partly because it gave them influence. If you're speaking as a medium, nobody is really holding you responsible for what you said. Not quite, at least. Um, So, you know, you could
1: get away with some stuff. Yeah, like a spooky loophole. So, in addition to this, Victoria had also been known to have religious visions of her own from a very young age. In one, for example, a young man in a tunic supposedly told her, quote, one day you will lead your people. So, it seems kind of prophetic for what's coming up in this podcast, but a lot of historians say that it may have just been because her mother was really religious that she said she had these visions. We're not, and we can't be really sure if she actually had them or not, but... Uh, kind of the environment she was growing up in. Yeah, definitely. She might have just been picking up on what she had seen. Regardless of the motivations and the inspirations, I guess, though, Victoria and Tennessee did turn a pretty big profit for their family doing this, though the girls weren't really sure how to approach it at first they kind of went to their dad and they're like, what are we supposed to do? And so Buck gave Victoria this advice. He said, be a good listener, child. And that's kind of all he told her. But we'll see that that comes into play later following that advice. That is, it sort of becomes the foundation for some of her later ideas. I
0: think it would be awkward if your dad told you and your
1: sister to go be mediums.
0: Like, I don't know where to start with that exactly. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you're right. It, It does prove to be a really big foundation to her later beliefs. And marriage was another big foundation of those later beliefs. And she got married for the first time when she was only 15 years old to a doctor named Kenning Woodhull. And it seemed like a promising match at first, except that he turned out to be a drunk. And Victoria was very unhappy and wanted to leave him. But because of Victorian social standards and the marriage laws at the time, she was trapped. Her property was was her husband's, and she really
1: couldn't get out. So she ended up, because Canning was such a drunk and also cheated on her, I think, and just basically wasn't a great provider at that time. He wasn't a very successful doctor, even though he was one. He didn't have that many... Patients, So she- Not too surprising. (laughs) Right. So she supported him and her two kids, Byron and Zulu, by dressmaking. Then she did a short stint with acting when they were living out on the West Coast. And then she eventually returned to the family business, which got increasingly sketchy as the years got by. Buck actually started claiming that Tennessee was a healer who could cure cancer And at one point later on down the road, she is charged with manslaughter when a man dies of cancer. Yeah, this is kind of what I meant. (laughs) Women didn't get too much in trouble for what they said as clairvoyance,
0: unless you go say you're going to cure someone's cancer. Yeah, unless you start making medical claims. Crosses the line, I guess. So Victoria's role, though, was different from Tennessee's. She wasn't out curing cancer. It was more like the job of a therapist, almost. She listened to people's problems, often problems about unhappy married life. And uh, hearing enough stories convinced her that in some cases, divorce was necessary and called for.
1: Yeah, and this is combined with her own experience, right? So she's had her own unhappy marriage and now she's hearing this from other people so obviously that would influence you a little bit yeah so she's starting to change her mind And this belief actually ends up coming in handy when in 1864 she moves to St. Louis and she meets a man by the name of Colonel James Henry Blood, who's just back from the Civil War. He's also into spiritualism, and she likes him immediately, not just because they have that in common, but he's very attractive, and so they hit it off. But he comes to see her as a patient, and she supposedly – this is the story that is told, that she supposedly goes into a trance and tells him – that his destiny is to marry her from like a faraway voice as if someone else is saying One way it. to like, do like, <laughs> you will marry me. Um, so, of course, after that, they decide they must get married. Even though they're both married. Even though they're both married at the time. So they file for divorce and they get married eventually in July 1866. She does keep the name Woodhull, though, which some find to be scandalous. Some people think that because she kept the name, that meant that she never really married blood, but...
0: Maybe she just didn't want to be Victoria Blood. That's true. That's a which pretty is a scary, scary name. Scary sounding. Um, but Blood, the husband, did have a really huge influence on Victoria's ideals and further shaping them. And he becomes something of a mentor to her and exposes her to these radical ideas at the time, uh, like birth control and free education and equal rights for women. And um, it starts to shape her into a new person with some pretty new ideas.
1: By the time Victoria and her extended family moved to New York City in 1868, and this was also at the direction of one of her visions, by the way, by that time, she's committed to social reform. But she realizes that to be a real player in the fight for equality, she needs some cash. Most women's rights activists at the time came from the upper and middle class. So that was the example she had for getting in.
0: Yeah, and that's an important thing to keep in mind for some later issues she runs into, but Victoria and Tennessee sat themselves up as clairvoyants in New York City, and they have business cards and everything. They're, like, really going for it, and they aren't making any claims about medical expertise anymore after that man's letter charge. You know, they've, they've learned better than that, and it seems like the business gets off to an amazingly lucky start because one of their first clients is 73-year-old multi-millionaire commodore
1: Cornelius Vanderbilt. So, yeah, he's the kind of guy who can make your clairvoyant career, I'd Definitely. say. Definitely. And actually it's very unclear how much this no-nonsense railroad and shipping tycoon actually believed in the sisters' spiritual powers, but he liked them in general and when we get down to it, he really just thought they were pretty. He yeah. liked hanging out with pretty women. So he takes to them And Vanderbilt teaches the sisters about the stock market. And I saw a quote in uh, American Heritage. It wasn't a quote, actually. It was said by John Gordon, the writer of this article in American Heritage. And he compared this to getting stock tips from Warren Buffett. So just to give all the listeners out there an example of how major this was, this was a pretty significant person to be giving you advice So he gives them tips, Colonel Blood invests money for them on their behalf using Vanderbilt's advice, and suddenly they find themselves with a little bit of wealth.
0: Yeah, it pays off pretty quickly. And so now that they're secure, Victoria is ready to make her debut into this women's rights movement. And she does that in January, 1869. But she knows that her clairvoyant job title is going to hold her back a little bit. She can't be a reformer and a working clairvoyant or no one will take her seriously. So she gives up her old line of work and makes starts taking
1: calculated steps
0: to recreate herself again.
1: Her first opportunity for reinvention comes by September 24th, 1869, and that happens to be Black Friday on Wall Street when the market crashed. Investors began selling off their stocks in a panic, and Victoria basically just sat outside the exchange and bought up bargains. She supposedly made $700,000 by the end of 1869, although some people think that she inflated that figure when she reported it. But she made a lot of money, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. After that, Victoria and Tennessee, they think – Okay, we've had a little success. We can probably become major players on Wall Street. So they ask for Vanderbilt's backing to open their own financial firm. And he shows his support. He gives them $7,000 to do that. It's called Woodhull. Claflin and Company. And the
0: sisters become the first female stockbrokers on Wall Street, the first of many firsts for at least Victoria. And they got a lot of attention because of this, and they met a lot of really influential people. And some people came by just to sort of check out this company, you know, swing by and see what it's all about. Walt Whitman even comes by he says something that sounds very Walt Whitman, quote, you have given an object lesson to the whole world. You are a prophecy of the future.
1: Here you go. Yeah. So you could put that on their new business cards. And that's just from doing, a you know, a little walkthrough. Um, Definitely. So overall, I think they had to rein in that people just walking through randomly thing, but business was good. Some people suggest that might have been because of Vanderbilt's name being behind it. I think people Automatically assume that maybe he was pulling the strings, but regardless, or they their did well.
0: Clairvoyant abilities. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> that could also be an aspect of it. Um, so Victoria starts making some pretty influential friends, and eventually she enlists one of them, Stephen Pearl Andrews, who was very educated, also another reformer, to help her buff up her education a little bit, you know, polish her basic reading and writing skills and and sort of get a new start there as well. And so in April 1870, the New York Herald begins to publish this series of articles
1: by Victoria, and she really comes out swinging for the first one. She does. She says, While others of my sex devoted themselves to a crusade against the laws that shackle the women of the country, I asserted my individual independence. While others prayed for the good time coming, I worked for it. While others argued the equality of woman with man, I proved it by successfully engaging in business. While others sought to show that there was no valid reason why women should be treated socially and politically as being inferior to man, I boldly entered the arena of politics and business and exercised the rights I already possessed. I therefore claimed the rights to speak for the unenfranchised women of the country and announce myself as a candidate for the presidency. So
0: there you go. I
1: know. She dropped a bomb with that one.
0: Definitely. So Ulysses S. Grant was in his first term at this time. And most people were thinking that he would run again in 1872. So the Republican nomination was out. She knew that she wouldn't get the Democratic nomination. So if she was going to run for president, she was going to have to nominate herself and get enough support to get her name put on the ballot. So
1: that's what she sets out to do. And she has a Pretty creative ways of going about it. She does. She launches into this whole series of kind of next steps to prepare for her, you can't really call it a campaign, I guess, but it it sort of was. An announced campaign. In her own way. Yeah. an, An unannounced campaign, a good way to put it. So she started by getting this big fancy house between Madison and Fifth Avenues in New York City's Murray Hill District, which was one of the more aristocratic neighborhoods. So Again, we see the whole class issue coming up here. She wanted to establish herself as someone who was somebody rather than, you know, a poor girl from Ohio. Definitely. And the next thing she does
0: is buy a newspaper.
1: Yeah, buying a newspaper meant that you were someone really influential. So she does buy one, and she calls it Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly. And she sets this up as doing a certain number of things. Of course, first and foremost, it supports Victoria C. Woodhull for president, It's a mixture of mudraking, fads, and scandals. For example, she publishes in her publication the first English translation in the U.S. of the Communist Manifesto. Which is
0: totally bizarro. (laughs) That was one of the things that threw me for the biggest loop in this episode, I think.
1: Yeah, it's sort of mentioned as a fact in her life, but seems like it should be a very big deal. But I guess when you have so many different things going on, it's hard to uh, make any one thing that prominent.
0: Yeah, but, you know, so she is running this newspaper, and it's not as out there as it seems. It had a circulation of 20,000 people by fall 1870, so she has a pretty large
1: audience reading all this Victoria Woodhull for president business. But even with all this, she knows it's still going to be tough to get elected if women can't vote for her. Simple enough, right? So she moves to Washington and declares herself a lobbyist on behalf of women's suffrage. And while she's in Washington, she befriends a congressman named Benjamin Butler, who helps her kind of navigate the political arena. So again, another male presence who's kind of helping her find her way. Together, they decide that women actually didn't need an amendment to vote. They already had the right under current laws. This is what they kind of formulated in their minds. They found a loophole. And the logic behind this was that the 15th Amendment stated that the rights of citizens of the U.S. shall not be denied or abridged. Then the 14th Amendment said that all persons born or naturalized in the U.S. are citizens. So when you put the two together, it means that all citizens have the right to vote. And since women are citizens, they have the right to vote too.
0: Yeah, so Woodhull, thanks to Butler's influence, actually becomes the first woman to address Congress on January 11, 1871 and get to make her case with this little loophole and and try to see what everybody thinks about it. It doesn't really work, but suffragettes, including Susan B. Anthony, were really impressed. I mean, how would you not be impressed by the first woman speaking before Congress.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty big first. So Victoria was invited finally. She had wanted this for a while, but because of her background and because of her scandalous, sort of scandalous newspaper that she had, she wasn't invited before, but she was finally invited to become part of the National Women's Suffrage Association. But it wasn't long before it became clear to the others who were members that Victoria wasn't just interested in women's rights. She started talking about things like national public education, institutionalized welfare for the poor, and perhaps the most controversial of things she talked about, free love.
0: Yeah. It's not quite the free love like what we think of today. Basically, she wanted to reform marriage laws and make man and wife equal partners in a marriage, a relationship that was based on love and free will, thus free love. It sounds a little more scandalous than it was, but still, it was something that was pretty radical for a lot of the suffragists. A lot of them were not on board with this idea
1: at all. No. I mean, for one thing, they didn't want women's rights to be diverted by other concerns. And on the other hand, some of the ideas like free love were way too extreme for a lot of the people who were involved. (music) So regardless, Victoria gave the speech about free love on November 20th, 1871, and this was kind of a turning point for her because after she gave the speech, it sparked this huge controversy all around her and her cause. People pretty much ignored her message of free love the way she had interpreted it and was trying to get it across, and they took it more as something that would be considered immoral in that day, probably more like we consider free love to be now. And so she was denounced in the press. It was a big to-do.
0: Yeah, and leaders of the suffrage association withdrew their support. And so Victoria now is not backed by this group of wealthy, influential women and people anymore. Uh, She's splintered off with a group of more radical women activists. So this radical group forms the Equal Rights Party, which has both men and women involved. And it's a party about... All sorts of reforms, basically a a reform-minded party. And in 1872, the party nominated Victoria for president. Interestingly, they also nominated Frederick Douglass, who was, of course, the very famous African-American leader in the anti-slavery movement at the time, as vice president. He turned the offer down. But Woodhull, of course, does accept. And in her acceptance speech, she says, quote, I have sometimes thought that here is something providential and prophetic in the fact that my parents conferred upon me a name which forbids the very thought of failure.
1: So again, bringing attention to her queenly name again. Little queen. At this time, though, after she was nominated, the Little Queen star was already in decline. Her views had caused her to lose a lot of supporters already and her Wall Street business as well. She went broke and she got turned out of her fancy home and she had to suspend publication of her weekly. So just a really kind of fast fall, you know, because of the loss of her support and business and also because she had put so much money into these campaigns that she was trying to. Pull off.
0: Yeah, but it was this one last scandal that really did her in. And unfortunately, it was instigated by Victoria herself.
1: Yeah, here's just a little background on that. The wealthy and influential Beecher sisters from Boston, Catherine Beecher and Harriet Beecher Stowe of Uncle Tom's Cabin Fame. They hated Victoria, according to author Jacqueline McLean, who wrote a biography of Victoria Woodhull. The Beechers opposed women's suffrage and were really just critical of how vocal Victoria was and everything that she did, both in her paper and in the speeches that she gave. But Victoria had something on them too. She had damaging information about their brother, who was a prominent Brooklyn pastor, Reverend Henry Ward Beecher. Now Reverend Beecher had had an affair with the wife of one of his colleagues. Possibly even impregnated her. She had a miscarriage. Yeah, very scandalous. And Victoria knew about this, but she hadn't used it yet. I mean, this sort of war between the Beecher sisters and Victoria had been going on for some time. Which is so
0: weird, too, if you think about it. The Beecher sisters. Yeah. I mean, come on. We think
1: of them as reformers, too.
0: Definitely. And, And I know you were mentioning earlier, it is strange that they were not reformers
1: involved in the women's movement, but so prominent in the abolition movement. Definitely. And I think they were also, Victoria saw them as being part of that sort of elitist upper class set that she just couldn't, the old establishment that she just couldn't break into. So they were just um, always at odds because of that. But in October 1872, she revived the weekly for one issue to write an expose about the whole affair with the Reverend. Maybe there are different theories about why she did this. Maybe it's because the reverend wouldn't lend her money when she came to him when she was broke. Maybe it's because she just wanted to get back up at all her critics. I especially mean, Especially the Beecher sisters. Especially the Beecher sisters. She had been blasted in the press for her free love ideas. And she wanted to basically say, okay, you guys are hypocrites because I may be talking about free love, but you guys are actually out there practicing yeah. it if you're having affairs with, you know, your colleagues' wives. So – That was sort of the motivation behind it. But the issue, as you would imagine, flew off the stands. I think people were buying not just the copies, but then buying used copies, and the price kept going up. So it was very popular, but it backfired against her in a big way. Victoria and her sister were arrested for distributing indecent literature through the mail and spent the election day itself in jail.
0: Yeah, and so after that, after a scandal of that magnitude, even her biggest supporters turned against her. So her political career, which hadn't ever really launched. I mean, to be honest, it hadn't really gotten off the ground, came to an end quite suddenly.
1: Yeah, I think they were in jail for about two months and then kept getting rearrested after that for various indecency charges and libel charges. And so it was a struggle for her after that. as She had to travel around again with her husband and her sister, giving speeches here and there for a little money. But people didn't really take her seriously after that.
0: More of a sideshow than a speaker you
1: were truly interested in hearing. Right, So yeah, kind of a disappointing ending after a sort of promising rise, but... We'll have to wrap up the details of her life a little bit. As I said at the beginning, there's so much to say about her, even her later life after all of this, that we could probably do a separate podcast on just the post-election Victoria. But instead, we'll just give you a little bit. She ends up divorcing Blood in 1876 when she catches him with another woman. So so much for free love, right? Yeah, We we know she's not going to go for that. So in 1877, she joins
0: up with her sister Tennessee again, besides, you Maybe they'll work better together. And they move to England and they get a fresh start. But the really weird thing is it takes $100,000 for them to get to England and set up quite nicely. And most people suspect that
1: that money came from a very prominent source. Yeah, a lot of people suspect that they were actually bribed to leave the country by Vanderbilt's son William after his death. And that's because of some feuding that was going on between the Vanderbilt siblings over their inheritance. And William, since he got the biggest chunk, he was afraid that the other siblings were going to try to prove that their father was not well in his mind when he made out his will and use the the uh, Claflin sisters, unfortunately, as an example of why he was unwell. So William might have Bought them off and sent
0: them packing to England. Yeah,
1: it's quite likely that somebody did, and it was probably him because they really didn't have any money at it, that point. They weren't earning much on the on Victoria's speech circuit. It's a good
0: offer for them to have taken though, because once they're there, both
1: of the ladies end
0: up becoming rich. Again, these these women have made so many fortunes and lost so many. This time it's the old-fashioned way, though. They just marry rich. And um Victoria, I think you mentioned she actually ends up inheriting not just her husband's fortune but his father's as well
1: yeah, unfortunately sure her new husband who loves her by all accounts he after he dies, I think he dies maybe a day after a few days after his father dies so she inherits a ton of money and retires to the English countryside with her daughter Zulu and they spend the rest of their life kind of, Funding these philanthropic efforts and, like, education and so forth. And um, she lives to be 88. She lives to be 88. She dies June 9th, 1927, in her sleep, seven years after American women were granted the right to vote. Yeah. So this kind of reminded me a little
0: bit of our Chinese Pirates episode in that it ends so well. Usually, usually I feel like our podcasts, even if they're upbeat, they have kind of a tragic ending. Not this one.
1: Yeah, this one has sort of a if not a happy ending because I think that she did want to redeem her her name and her character and her image and maybe never quite got where she wanted to get with that, but um a comfortable a, ending. A comfortable ending, a peaceful kind of ending. So and as we said, that is the end.